Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Harold Rosen on March 2, 2021. Harold is a community interfaith educator, a designer and teacher of community courses on world religions and world history. He was a Unitarian minister for 25 years and has been a Baha'i interfaith educator since 2000. He's written extensively on religion and interfaith issues. We discuss his work, Founders of Faith, the Parallel Lives of God's Messengers in the interview. I started the interview by asking Harold where did he grow up and what was his religious life like? I grew up in New York City. I was there for the first four years of my life and then we moved to Arkansas for about a year. My father was a scientist and had a Jewish background, German-Jewish background. So he had a rather rational outlook on things and interest in uh, global developments, etc. My mother had a Spanish Catholic background. And so the fact that they married each other meant that they were both open-minded and willing to overcome the prejudices of their own, we might say, ethnic and religious communities. So I grew up in an atmosphere where there was a religious freedom and a lot of interest in religion and philosophy and science. My dad was getting a PhD in physical chemistry when I was young. And so there was an atmosphere that was sort of serious, not without joy, but focused on learning and accomplishment. My mother would take me to churches once in a while, usually liberal Christian churches like the Methodist I remember going to a Unitarian church at age 10 and 11 in Pittsburgh and really enjoying it. They were talking about evolution. They were talking about Jesus, the carpenter's son, as a moral, spiritual exemplar. So my religious upbringing was, we could call it religious liberalism or respect for pluralism, belief that there are good ideas that come to us from different fields, whether the arts or the humanities or the sciences. And would you say that your life has had an overall direction and purpose? Definitely. It seems like at a very early age, I decided that I wanted to be some kind of a specialist, have some area of expertise. That area shifted a little bit over the years, but I think by the time I was in late high school, going into college, I knew that I wanted to pursue the big picture, so to speak. In other words, philosophy, religion, theology, social sciences, especially macro views of society and what is human nature from a broad, maybe anthropological perspective or geographical perspective. So yes, that was my goal, to get a grip on the big picture and be a teacher researcher, investigator, but I also had a little bit of an activist streak too. I thought something had to be done with the knowledge of the world, something that inspired people, something that pushed us in the direction of peace and justice. To me, that's a fairly specific direction. I wanted to 
teach a vision of the world and even of the cosmos. So that got me interested in evolution, broadly speaking, both natural evolution, cultural evolution, religious evolution, the development of humanity over the ages, that sort of thing. And where did that ultimately take you in this direction? So in college, I double majored in philosophy and psychology because they seem to be looking at foundational questions about human nature and the nature of reality and how do we know and what values are worth seeking, ethical questions. I took philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, philosophy of art. This was in the late 60s when I went to college. So I wanted to actually affect the social justice arena in some way. And I decided to go into education and work with the poor in southern Texas. That was a program called the Teacher Corps. So I could use my training and my idealism to influence younger people. And I did that for several years in South Texas and discovered Unitarians when I was there and was asked to be a speaker with Unitarians several times. That ultimately led me to seminary in California. My pursuit of the big picture took me from philosophy and psychology, then a little bit of sociology and other social sciences, into religion, and also into the field of education broadly, and looking for ways to affect the world and be of practical impact and bring about higher ideals and higher motivation. And did you ultimately become a Unitarian minister? In seminary, I took five years because I was pursuing both religious education and parish ministry credentials. And yes, I served as a minister of education in Berkeley for six years. And during that time, I became aware of a program called the Minister on Loan Program. There was a fellowship, a Unitarian fellowship in Idaho that wanted someone who had my interests and credentials to come there. And they were also in an area, the Moscow-Pullman area on the border of Washington and Idaho, where there are two universities. And that excited me because I wanted to pursue a degree in philosophy, integrate a more advanced studies in philosophy with my other interests. And Unitarians are fairly intellectually oriented. So I served as a parish minister in the Moscow-Pullman area of the boundary between Idaho and Washington. I stayed there nine years. I got a chance to teach a philosophy of religion, ethics, which was a historical approach. I taught logic and reasoning while I was a Unitarian minister and had a chance to do a little bit of social justice work, environmental issues, anti-nuclear weapons issues, and I bumped into some Baha'is there because I was interested in interfaith cooperation. That interest started back when I was in Berkeley, California, too, which is kind of a holy land for, you might say, ideological diversity of many kinds, spiritual movements, religious movements, social justice movements. So I brought some of that influence that I got in Central California with me to Idaho, for those nine years. And yeah, I served as a Unitarian minister, but was doing a lot of teaching. For five years, I was teaching at the university as well. It's like I had a foot in two camps. 
the, the theoretical and the service-oriented, you might say. You've called yourself an interfaith and multicultural bridge builder. What activities has this role involved? Yes, the multicultural part of that. Let me just talk about that first. I moved from Idaho, where I was for nine years, to the Vancouver, B.C. area. In other words, I moved to Canada, another country. But I had been to the Vancouver, Canada area for conferences and meetings with ministers and such, and I really loved it. It seemed incredibly diverse from a cultural and religious point of view. That really appealed to me. Also, I wanted to live in a bigger city, I think, and see a larger view of the world. And the Vancouver, Canada area seemed very cosmopolitan and full of cultural and religious diversity. And they had a policy in Canada called multiculturalism. The government actually supports and welcomes diversity. Taxpayer money goes into encouraging and fostering multicultural understanding and cooperation. So that was a very specific lure for me the diversity of that part of the world, both culturally and religiously. I also could do a lot of interfaith work because there were people from many different religious backgrounds in the Vancouver area, even Zoroastrian, people from Asia and China and many Indo-Canadians. So you literally could find representatives of every faith community. The Sikhs are there in some fairly large numbers. Also, Indigenous people are a larger percentage of Canadian population. So it's an enormously diverse part of the world, the Vancouver area. So for me, it was like a goldmine of learning opportunity and bridge-building opportunity between cultural groups, ethno-cultural groups, and religious groups. Yeah, I saw myself as a multicultural bridge-builder and an interfaith educator in that I enjoyed learning about the different faith traditions and looking for common ground and the higher principles and virtues taught by all the religions. And during this time, the 1990s, I encountered Baha'is in larger numbers than I had ever encountered before and started to read about the Baha'i faith, its scriptures, about the lives of its founders and formative figures. So I was integrating a Baha'i perspective with an interfaith perspective and with my liberal Christian view or Unitarian Universalist background. So that was a, a wonderful 12 years, well, 13 years, between 1987 and the year 2000. I was serving as a Unitarian Universalist minister but doing a lot of multicultural and interfaith cooperation work in Vancouver. And you also call yourself a community interfaith educator. Yes. Within interfaith work, I was discovering that I was most suited to the educational arena. Like within interfaith, you could do a lot of different things. You could focus, for example, on the mystical traditions, the spiritual traditions. You could focus on the art and music of various faith communities. You could look at the social justice cooperation possibilities between faith communities. I discovered that I was most skilled at teaching about or identifying 
the major teachings and directions and the cultural riches supplied by the world religions for the world. So I started to develop a sense of history too, that the religions had contributed enormously to history in both a negative way and a positive way. So within interfaith relations, I picked up the specialty of interfaith educator. That meant that I was designing and offering courses on the different religions and sometimes different sets of them. Sometimes I would look at two religions. Sometimes I would look at three or four together. Sometimes I would look at seven or eight together. Sometimes I would include indigenous spirituality along with that. Sometimes I would even compare philosophical wisdom traditions and spiritual unaffiliated traditions with my approach to teaching world religion. So in other words, I became very interested in diversity, diversity of worldview and outlook with a special interest in finding common ground and emphasizing the common ground and encouraging people to build on common ground to build a better world. The Baha'i writings especially influenced me in that direction. The theme of the Baha'i faith is unity, understood very, very broadly. Unity among religions, unity among nations, unity among cultures. And unity does not mean uniformity. It means embracing the diversity and building on the common ground, the common story behind the unfolding of humanity across the ages. So that's what I am still today. I call myself a community interfaith educator who became a Baha'i officially in the year 2000. I ended my Unitarian Universalist ministry career that was almost 25 years and in the year 2000 decided to make a new career out of being a community interfaith educator. In other words, teaching courses on world religions open to the public. Sometimes that would be through university programs. Sometimes they would be through community programs offered by churches or senior centers or libraries. So I ended up teaching about 10 courses a year for 20 years, over the last 20 years. What was the process going inside of you that you felt that you had to move from being a Unitarian minister to becoming an adherent to the Baha'i faith? You know, that is a very complex question. I think I'm going to try to simplify it, though. There's a lot in common between Unitarians and Baha'is, and I'll just name some of those similarities. Unitarians and Baha'is both like to investigate truth. They have respect for science and religion. They believe that there is great value in all of the great wisdom traditions and, and the world religions as originally taught. So both Unitarians and Baha'is are very open to truth and revelation, you might say, from different sources. Here's the big difference. As a Unitarian, I was a believer in what I call small r revelation. So small r revelation is revelation that you can get from studying or noticing or observing or appreciating virtually anything. Revelation might come from human experience. It could come from any field of study. It could come from the arts and the humanities. It could come from looking at groups' histories and their value systems. So 
revelation with a small r or inspiration with a small i can come from almost any source. Revelation with a big R is something I didn't fully believe in until I took a very careful look at the major world religions, including the Baha'i faith. I started to hear like the same voice, capital V, behind the teachings in the world scriptures and especially in the Baha'i writings, which were accenting the importance of God having educated humanity over the ages. That's the teaching called progressive revelation. It's central to the Baha'i faith. And for me, it was like a new paradigm for explaining why there are foundational similarities in all of the major faith traditions and why science and religion should get along a little better, one focusing on invisible reality and the other on visible or physical reality, but both interdependent with each other and needed to balance our understanding of human experience. So moving from a Unitarian minister to a Baha'i with an emphasis on community religious education was discovering the power of this thing called Revelation with a capital R. That helped me realize that the great world religions were not simply just good ideas that human beings could discern by purely rational or empirical methods, but they were messages from the divine level of reality. They had a higher status, the truths that were in the revelatory tradition. So in a sense, the, in the early 90s, I was discovering big R revelation. And that gave me a special appreciation for the Baha'i faith, which was saying, yes, big R revelation has been operative through all of human history. And the places that's most visible is in the rise of great civilizations. For example, Jewish civilization and Hindu civilization, Buddhist civilization, Christian civilization, Islamic civilization. And now Baha'is are claiming that a global civilization is in the making, one in which uh, humanity will mature morally and spiritually and cooperate more profoundly and see that essentially we've been living one great story. Humanity's been living one great story and the, the different religious episodes were like chapters in the same book each chapter getting a little more sophisticated than the previous one and taking humanity to more advanced places. It's not that we don't digress. The reason we need another religion is because we do digress. We forget the original moral spiritual teachings of our faith traditions and we decline over the ages and corruption sets in and God in his mercy sends another educator. So this is the paradigm of progressive revelation, which to me is a key to understanding world history, humanity's evolution, and world religion as a whole, as basically a single story with many chapters. You wrote the book, Founders of Faith, The Parallel Lives of God's Messengers. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I was teaching courses, even as a Unitarian minister, I was discovering gradually that I was more of an educator than a preacher. My preaching was more like teaching, and I taught courses in my church, 
And because I was fascinated with multiculturalism and the multi-faith arena, I was teaching courses that would deepen my understanding on all these things. So my files about, for example, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, the Chinese religions, Taoism and Confucianism and Sikhism, these files were getting thicker and thicker and thicker, and I was starting to notice patterns, and I was refining my way of delivering these courses and engaging people in dialogue. And so I started to write outlines that looked to me like a book. I realized gradually I'm writing a book. I've been taking a while to do it. Over 10 years of my Unitarian ministry in Vancouver, and then teaching courses more specifically in the interfaith arena from the year 2000 on. So I started becoming aware that I was writing a book, say, in the early 2000s. Then by the year 2010, I had a published book. So it took a while to formulate it into a book because I was looking specifically for patterns that could be seen in all the religious traditions that would help people compare. So the book Founders of Faith uses 25 patterns or parallels that you can find in seven major faith traditions and shows how it's a very similar story or narrative that you can find when you study each faith traditions in a kind of historical perspective. And this includes the Baha'i faith, and this means the pattern will continue with other world religions in the future. When humanity needs a renewal of religious understanding and an evolutionary advance in culture, then another religion will come. This is a Baha'i teaching. Sometime in the future, there will be another manifestation of God or prophet or messenger or enlightened one who will serve as a mediator between the divine realm and the human realm and lift humanity up to another level. So that book, Founders of Faith, grew very organically out of all those courses I was teaching. And it was a systematic way of putting between two covers my whole course, so to speak, on the major religions. And what do you hope readers will get from reading the book? You know, I mentioned earlier that I was something of an activist. So I'm hoping that the book inspires people to have greater respect and to want to cooperate across religious and cultural boundaries. So, for example, if we know about the loftiness of Hinduism and Buddhism, then we're more likely to have less prejudice and deeper respect for people from India and other parts of Asia. If we learn about Confucianism and Taoism, we understand the role of those religions as well as Buddhism in generating the very lofty uh, sequence of Chinese dynasties. So we'll have more respect for Asia and China that way. And the same thing in the Middle East. If we learn about Islam and that it was a great world religion with the same source, capital S, source of the other major faith traditions, we see why people who were basically warring tribes in Arabia who were not part of the historical drama could be grasped by a new revelation that came through Muhammad called Islam and end up stepping onto the stage of world history 
and having a very powerful impact. And again, I'm not trying to look at history through rose-colored glasses. There's digression, too, in all the faith traditions. So religions, in effect, have like a lifespan. At least they have up to this point. They go through a springtime, a summer, a autumn, and then winter, where they're in steep decline, and they've almost forgotten the original moral spiritual power of their founders' teachings. So history is the story of civilizations being generated by religions and then developing with those religions and at a certain point declining. So virtues at a certain point start to become vices. So religion goes up and it levels out and then it declines and then a new religion comes along. This particular theory that I'm expounding now is corroborated by Arnold Toynbee, who wrote 12 volumes on the history of civilizations. So as I was learning about the Baha'i Faith and Progressive Revelation, I was learning about Toynbee and this macro view of history. But all this is to say, you know, you ask, what do I hope readers will get from reading Founders of Faith? That they'll get deep respect for religions. They'll see that religions generate the high points of civilizations that religions and civilizations decline, but then another one comes along as if God were a spiritual physician and a divine educator working through a prophet to lift us up and to remind us of our moral spiritual potential. So I'm hoping that book makes a contribution to interfaith understanding and cooperation. Harold, would you like to read an excerpt from the book, Founders of Faith? Yes, I'd love to. This is a quote from the book Century of Light, which was written on behalf of the Universal House of Justice, the, the highest authority in the Baha'i world. So this is a short book, but it's designed to give us a sense of what happened in the Century of Light, the 20th century, and leading to today's world in the early 21st century. And so this describes the pattern that I was describing in this book, Founders of Faith. It begins by quoting the Gospel of John. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. That's one short line from the Gospel of John. The promised manifestation of God appears. A community of believers forms around this focal center of spiritual life and authority. A new system of values begins to reorder both consciousness and behavior. The arts and sciences respond. A restructuring of laws and of the administration of social affairs takes place. Slowly but irresistibly, a new civilization emerges, one that so fills the ideals and so engages the capacities of millions of human beings that it does indeed constitute a new world a world far more real to those who live, move, and have their being in it than the earthly foundation on which it rests. Throughout the centuries that follow, society continues to depend for its cohesion and self-confidence primarily on the spiritual impulse that gave it birth. So that paragraph brilliantly describes the pattern that I was getting at in this book. These are founders of faith who are also founders of civilizations. And civilizations 
are the major agents of world history. So figures like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Baha'u'llah, one of the two co-founders of the Baha'i faith, are extremely important if we're to get a grip on the whole flow of history and see where the turning points are and when a new civilization is coming into view. The book is full of short quotations from the scriptures that illustrate the patterns, the 25 patterns that I identified in the book. And those patterns, I think, really help people compare the religions. See, they start to see that there's a sense in which all of the religious civilizations are equal in that they are chapters of the same book, attempts by uh, the author of creation to lift humanity up, to launch us through the ages and bring about continuing progress so that we fulfill all of our moral spiritual potential. Harold, what other studies and teaching came in the wake of this book? It's almost like a lotus, if you could imagine. If you peel back (laughs) one leaf, you find another one and another one and another one. As I taught more about the founders of the major religions, I got more and more enchanted with history as a whole. So I started to teach world history classes, focusing on civilizations proper. I still had not forgotten my thesis that religions and revelations generate these civilizations, but I started to look at the patterns of the major civilizations. So I taught a bunch of courses on world history and the history of ideas. They had titles like Civilizations and Religions, Eye to the Ages, Centuries of Darkness and Light, Why Do Civilizations Rise and Fall, Philosophers of History, Hinges of History and Forays into the Future, etc. Lots of courses on world history that were emphasizing civilizations, usually at their heights, the fact that they really developed in the area of science, technology, in arts and the humanities, lofty legal systems. That is, before they got powerful enough to start to break up, power politics sets in at a certain point. The higher moral principles are forgotten gradually. And so that accounts for, I think, the decline of civilizations and the need for the emergence of a new one. So, in other words, I went from religion to a fascination with world history, and from there to an interest in cultural evolution and and biological evolution. I was studying, for example, the history of science and technology in relation to the emergence of uh, developments in various fields. There were other interests, too. I have looked at spirituality and, you might say, mystical development. I taught a course on women mystics. I taught a course on spiritual renaissances. I've never lost my interest in the big picture as a whole. So I had a course called One World, Visions Past, Present, and Future, in which I was trying to trace the idea of one world or a cosmopolitan world or a world in which everyone has dignity and rights. And I think that's, in fact, the kind of world that the Baha'i faith is going to help bring about. So 
yeah, you see, my interest in world religions led to interest in history, cultural advancements, history of ideas, including science. I someday might look into the arts as a major part of the human endowment and how they contribute. I've also gotten interested in individual development as well. So cultural development and historical development has fascinated me, but I haven't lost my interest in psychology. So that brings about what's called developmental psychology, the various stages we go through. That's another interest of mine and how across the lifespan, we have the potential to develop a larger and larger worldview. So we can attain wisdom if we hang around for seven, eight, or nine decades. Yeah, those are some of the other interests that unfolded for me. And in fact, I did write another big book that never got published called Eye to the Ages that has 20 chapters, and it's probably too long, but it has chapters on all of the major civilizations, including Indian civilization, Chinese civilization, Middle Eastern civilization, even ancient American civilizations, the Aztec, the Maya, and the Inca. I've even looked at North American indigenous societies in their advanced form or civilizations as well. So that was another book, unpublished, but I used all of the material in that book for my courses. I to the ages. I didn't want to waste what I had learned. What are your current projects and aspirations? I'm 73 years old, and I think I'm gearing up for one last big project. I've always had this idea that was sort of subliminal of a magnum opus, some sort of a large, great work that would try to say it all, so to speak. Remember I said I was a lover of the big picture from a very early age. So this would be a book on the big picture, and it would be like a Baha'i-inspired, comprehensive worldview of some kind. I don't know what to call it. I might call it something like Mirror of God, a systematic Baha'i-inspired worldview. And I don't want to do it alone. There's two guys who are Baha'is who have a lot of interest in world religions and world history that might like to do this with me. And we all have different skills. We bring to the table different talents or interests, you might say. So this would be a work of about 400 pages. So in other words, given how big the subject would be, we would have to be saying in a very fairly brief way some things that contribute to a large picture. I've always considered myself someone with more theoretical than practical intelligence, but I've also always been interested in how to make the world a little bit better. So anyway, I'm starting to consult with these two other Baha'i scholars on the possibility of some sort of a large work that would integrate the fields of philosophy, theology, a macro history or world history, and also look at major ethical concerns like justice, peace, and prosperity for all people. So that's what I might do, a more comprehensive work even bigger than the history of religion and the history of civilizations, but showing a cosmic view that grows out of the wisdom of the ages, specifically with Baha'i guidance. So a book like this might have short Baha'i quotes and then an attempt to apply these foundational values to 
the major areas of learning and advancement. So this would have to touch on science and technology and education, beauty and art. It would have to account for the diversity in the world and how that's an advantage, not a disadvantage. Talk about progress. It would have to project into the future. See, that's what I mean by a comprehensive view. It would try to embrace the past, the present, and then project into a plausible future and an ideal future for humanity as a whole. There's a lot in the Baha'i writings that talks about the future. The lesser peace and the most great peace are concepts in the Baha'i writings that help us get a grip on some of the stages that may be coming for humanity. Well, Harold, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about your work and your book, Founders of Faith. Thank you so much. Wonderful to have this opportunity. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Harold Rosen, a community interfaith educator who was a Unitarian minister for 25 years and has been a Baha'i interfaith educator since 2000. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel a by perspective, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
I turned away from myself when I learned that I'm not by myself. I wanna die in you and turn to see you living in me eternally. Uh, how many eyes have seen what I've been through? How many hearts will confide in you? I seek your pleasure and I want it to continue. So I tell myself, look alive, I will die in you. Been a long time now that I'm looking for a sign Using my eyes trying to see what I find So I'm staring out the window thinking about a time When I can just chill and relax my mind But my heart can't see through the pain You know I can't see through the rain and the stain on the frame So I look inside and I hear a voice say If you love me, turn away So I turn away from myself I'll stay forever like this Through the night, through the day I learn that better things come my way If I die in him and begin to pray So it's clear with no tears and no fear We don't need to wait around for heaven to appear Cause it's right here inside So come on everybody look alive Service 
Yeah.